Hello, everyone, and welcome back to part two of a podcast brought to you by Boxlight. I'm your host for today, Gabrielle, and right now we are continuing our conversation with guest Preston Travis, STEM training and development specialist at Boxlight. And together, we'll be discussing the challenges that teachers face in today's educational landscape, the very essence of creativity, how traditional educational systems sometimes unintentionally stifle it, and most importantly, how we can foster and nurture creativity in our classrooms. So let's get back to the episode. Well, I want to ask you your perspective on potential roadblocks, because I'm sure you've come into contact with um, parents maybe coming and saying, hey, well, I want uh, the focus to be more on the hard skills, on uh, math, on sciences. We don't need all this creativity stuff, and arts. Um, so how do you deal with, uh, as an educator, administrative pressures even, uh, and parent expectations that may potentially act as roadblocks to fostering creativity in the classroom. Yeah, it, it's it's real. It's real and it, it is a challenge. So I'll start with parents. The first thing is letting the evidence speak for itself because I cannot tell you how many conferences or emails or phone calls where the parents have expressed literally to the point where they are in tears thanking me that they got their child back because in the previous years they were forced to do all this thing. And and I understand that may not be representative of, of all demographics. There are parents who really want their kids to get good grades and get into a good college. Um, and so I think the first thing is you need to trust teachers need to trust themselves. They need to trust the process and they need to let the evidence speak for, for itself because what you will find is a classroom that embraces creativity, a classroom that embraces curiosity, a classroom that embraces kindness. These are things that are not measurable in a way that reading comprehension is, but over time, absolutely, you can see the results. And so trusting yourself and trusting the processes is huge. Um, for administrators, <laughs> that's a that's a different thing. Uh, I First and foremost, I, again, it has to come down to trust and building those relationships of trust and understanding the expectations of your administrator and having very candid conversations and asking, what do you expect my students to do at the end of the year? And if your administrator is saying, you know, well, I expect every student to jump two grade levels in reading. I expect them to have every this, this and that mastered. Then I would come back to that administrator and say, great, I'm going to get that done. Can I tell you how I will do that? And then I would be very honest with the administrator, with my philosophies, with my process. And for me personally, if I was in a, an, if, if I was at a school where I had an administrator that would say, no, don't do that. Just stick to the book and script. I would go somewhere else. But I understand that not everybody has that, that freedom and that ability. And so I think, again, it just comes down to trusting yourself and we need to really look at um, what teachers do. Teachers have gone to school to learn how to teach and parents have a great responsibility in what they do in parenting at home. Administrators have a great responsibility in what they do to administrate the school. Trust needs to be given back to the educators because they are the professionals. They are the ones that went to school for this. And as a parent myself, I understand how scary that can be because we want to be in control of the things that our children are learning and are experiencing. But there has to be 
trust and there has to be this letting go of i i'm trusting my teacher um i'm trusting my kids teacher that they know what's best and what that also means is we have to have the right expectations of our teachers we have to be evaluating the right things if there are people who want to evaluate only math and reading skills we have completely missed the mark on what is important but i understand too it is very hard to assess and to measure kindness. If you were to give me a spreadsheet on kindness, what does that look like? Because kindness could be a smile. It could be holding the door for somebody. It could be playing with a kid that didn't have a friend. Sometimes for some kids, kindness could be not saying the thing that you want to say. But how important is that kindness in the culture of the classroom that does have an impact on reading and math? And we're looking at the wrong thing. And so I would then encourage teachers to invite their administrators and parents and the community to sit down and to find a space where they can have conversation, where they can find mutual ground. Because if they're saying, you know, Mr. Trevis, we're, our math scores and our reading scores are really low, especially after the pandemic, we really got to get these up. I would agree. And I would then have a discussion on how we get there while focusing on the right things. So there has to be trust. There has to be space where conversations can be had and where people can be heard and where trust can be given to the teachers to do what they went to school to do. And most teachers that I've spoken with got into this profession because they wanted to make a difference, not because they wanted to retire as millionaires. No, absolutely. And, you know, talking about making a difference, I mean, how important is it to nurture uh, creative aspects and just a, a creative outlook from a young age? I mean, what are the, some of the long-term impacts that it can have? And, you know, if it does make a difference, then how do we focus on creating the school environments that nurtures it, uh, but also adhering to the educational standards that we just talked about? I mean, do you have any case examples of uh, an incident, instance like this? Sure. So um, one of my heroes of all time, uh, Kobe Bryant, and Kobe Bryant had what he called the mama mentality. And the mama mentality was to be obsessed with better. And to be obsessed with better is not settling for your best because the best is an end goal. And there's always something beyond that. There's always something past that. To foster this, you know, there's a lot of mindsets that we can adopt and we can approach. But doing it at an early age is so crucial because when you look at things like sports, when you see professionals who are professional in their field, professional football, basketball, tennis, you can backtrack to the time in their childhood where somebody fostered that skill, where they said, hey, I think you might like this sport. And then they did it. And then they kept going, they kept going, and they kept pushing them. And Kobe Bryant would say, um, I, I wouldn't go to this extreme for, for like teachers and everything. But when asked, you know, why was he the greatest? Why was he this? Why was he that? He was the one that was in the gym two hours before everybody else. And then everybody would show up and he would already have been practicing for, for two hours. And he would do that and he would have this mentality and have this push and he'd have this drive. And I feel like we need to have the same type of approach when we are fostering that creativity at a very young age, um, that we need to be obsessed with better, that we need to be obsessed with the right kind of better, not better test scores, but better kindness, better empathy, better um, community, sense of community, sense of belonging. And um, 
uh, case study, um, I'm going to selfishly um, use my own child <laughs> as my case study. I am just constantly blown away by the things that my own children come up with and create. And it's very tempting to step in and to want to show them how they should do something. Oh, try this, do this, do that. And that can that can be helpful. We can definitely scaffold in certain areas where they may not see something. But when we take us again, like it's just taking a step back and just letting them look at something in a different way. And uh, the way that my children will take blocks and will make things that I never, I would never imagine them to create. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you another story from my classroom. Um, this is with 3d printing. Um, so a little, little, you know, with box light, I do a lot of training on 3d printing. And what's amazing about 3d printing is there are websites where students can go in and they can 3d model whatever they want. They can make whatever they want. They can design something and they can put it into a 3d printer and the 3d printer can make it come to life. Like that's magic to me. Um, I was printing something for a student one time and it was uh, Kirby and Kirby's this little character. He's a, a ball shape. And as my thing was printing, it, it broke, something didn't go right about halfway through. So it created about a half sphere and that's all it was. And I took this and I threw it in the trash. I said, oh, this was, you know, a failure. It didn't work out. I'll try it again. And one of my students said, oh, Mr. T, can I, can I have that? I was like, uh, Okay. I very easily could have said, no, that's trash. Leave it there. Like it didn't work out. I'm going to print another one. But I said, yeah, you can have it. And he took this half sphere. He took some scissors and some paper. He went out to recess. He comes back and he shows me that he had used scissors to hollow out this sphere. So it was like a bowl. And he and his friends had taken some paper and they crumpled it up and they made a game called Kirby Ball where they were just throwing a piece of paper and trying to catch it in this sphere. And that's what they made. That's what they created. And... I was just blown away. It's something that I thought was a failure, something that I thought was literally trash and had no use. A child saw this from their childlike eyes and thought, I'm going to make a game out of this. And then when you look at what happened with that game, what then was he doing? He was including other people. And then what was he doing? He was fostering friendships. Then what was he doing? He was creating a game that requires logic and rules that they were trying to follow. All of those things happen because a child was given the space to look at something in a way that only children can. And when you look at the greats in sports, I want my students to become the greats in creativity. I want them to be the people that create something that may not have as big of an impact as Kobe Bryant playing basketball. But in their community, they are viewed as somebody who is empathetic, is kind, is inclusive, and will not look at something as it has only one purpose. And that's what I feel like we need in this world. You know, people will say, oh, there's so many things going wrong in the world today. Yeah, because we lost track of what's important and creativity is at the heart of that. So it starts at an early age. We got to get out of the way and we got to just nurture that. For sure. And I mean, how can educators ensure that creative learning opportunities are are pretty always accessible to all students, regardless of a background or ability? I mean, are there ways that assessments maybe can be designed to encourage creative thinking and problem solving skills rather than just uh, rote mm -hmm. memorization? Absolutely. So again, I would go back to this idea of, of a genius project or something where students are given time once a week. 
And uh, I remember when we would do genius projects, I had students that wanted to learn how to bake. And I'm like, I'm going to let you use the oven at our school. And I talked to my principal and the principal said, yeah, they can totally do that. And I worked with parents to get parent volunteers to show up on the day we did our, our uh, we call it Genius Friday. And I had students that were learning to bake. I had students that were making their own slime. I had students that were making stop motion animation videos. I had students that were learning how to play Dungeons and Dragons, which is a big passion of mine. It could be a whole nother podcast episode. But what ended up happening was they, the things that they learn academically, the writing skills, the presenting skills, the math skills. I mean, how much math do you need to know how to bake? You Fractions? Are you kidding me? Like, amazing. And then what ends up happening is it is a beautiful form of assessment because what was one of my standards? Oh, one of my standards was that students were able to present a main idea with supporting detail. So the following week, in order to assess for their ability to write a main idea with supporting detail, my question for them was, how did your Genius Friday go last week? Support your answer with three pieces of evidence. And then I was getting beautiful paragraphs that were saying, um, last week, I was doing a genius project on baking. It went great because our cookies turned out delicious. They turned out delicious because we tried them and they didn't taste too salty. If I were to do it again, I would add more chocolate chips. The, these examples clearly state that my Genius Hour Friday was a success. You're going to grade that. That's going to be 100% and A, whatever grading system you use. And they are excited to do it. They're wanting to do it because it's connected to something they're excited about, they're passionate about, and was their choice. So that would be my advice for educators is to um, give that freedom, give that time, give that space. And if you do have standards you need to teach and address, there are so many ways you can assess and you can have them write, you can have them present, uh, you can have them, um, if you're doing science, um, science is all about providing the evidence. Where is your evidence? Where is your example? What's your thesis? Uh, there are so many ways in which you can walk students through that process that can not only meet your standards, but will foster that creativity. Well, as we start to wrap up the podcast here, we're going to end on, uh, on an actionable note. And you mentioned a great example there with Genius Fridays, but uh, how can parents be more involved in fostering creativity in their children? And how can schools in tandem help facilitate this involvement? And just for a nice end to this whole conversation that we're talking about, how important is it to adopt just a holistic approach to education that values creativity as much as academic achievement? Great. Great place to end. So if there are schools that do see the benefit in this and the approach that that benefits the children, the families, the community, there are many resources out there. There's too many to name, but what I would say is for for schools and districts that do prioritize this, I've seen great examples where there have been weekly or monthly emails with suggested activities. And that's nothing new, but it's providing those things so that because parents, parents got tons of work on their plate too. Like they don't have time to come up with projects that their kids are going to do every single day. So if schools have people employed by the district who are part of a community outreach program, they can definitely support families by providing ideas, working with um, the community, like, for example, working with your public library to provide spaces where um, 
kids can show up. Uh, our public library is fantastic. They have events all the time where we bring our kids and they have arts and crafts always available for them and it's all free. And so just understanding what's available in your community is, is going to be huge. The next thing I would say is showing families what can easily be done with things that they have at their house. One of the things I love to do is um, I wasn't a big believer in homework, but I was a big believer in family time. And so I would send out weekly things that families could do together, everything from cooking meals together and having your students create a cookbook or write down a recipe. Um, one of my favorites was um, putting on a family uh, play. And that was one of my favorites. I would get like full videos and and um, casting scripts from families that put on a full play. And then they loved it so much. I did it again. But then I was teaching about um, ancient Greece. And so I would incorporate with like, OK, you're going to do a play at home with your family. And I want you to use these five vocabulary words from ancient Greece. And like it was I mean, the bed sheets making the togas. It was it was a it was phenomenal. Um, and I understand that not every family is going to do this. Not every family is going to embrace it. But by just showing what you can do, it takes a lot of that decision fatigue off of the parents. And even as simple as letting kids be messy, letting kids make the messes at home. We, a lot of us probably have a lot of cardboard boxes from Amazon and other things in our house that just end up in the trash. Give it to your kid. Give it to your kid and give them some crayons and tell them to make something. And it may not be great at first, but by just giving them things over time, they will come up with some amazing things. Uh, my daughter, she we gave her these red cups and she cut them and then she taped them to the wall and they made this cascading um, slide like thing. And then she took these ping pong balls and then she like it was this whole slide she made. And she just saw something and, and wanted to make it. And it could have been something where I would have thought, we spent a lot of money on those and don't cut those. And now you're going to have to clean that up. And that is something that is just so magical with kids. And and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll end with this too. Like it takes everything within me when I am baking with my kids to not stress about the mess because every single time we make pancakes shells end up in the bowl and every single time i have to go fishing for the eggshells but that's not the point of making the pancakes that's not what they're learning my children are learning science they're learning that when you mix certain ingredients together and you heat them up they make edible food my children are learning that something can exist in this state that is hard and yet fragile at the same time they are learning skills that they are going to apply later on in life when they are on their own and they are going to make their own food. And it takes a lot within me to not worry about the mess and to not worry about uh, the cleanup that, that I will have to do or I will have to hopefully involve my kids with. Um, and so uh, for parents and families and communities, letting kids be, letting kids take charge, letting them be kids while guiding them down those pathways that we need because ending on this idea of a holistic approach, we are not assessing the whole child in this world today. We are not prioritizing the things that matter. I wish that there was a greater emphasis on kindness, but not just talking about it, actually doing something about it. And it starts with example. It starts with, um, it, it starts with a reprioritization 
of, of priorities and time. And so if you want to have raised children that are going to be passionate, excited to learn, resilient, then let's look at the whole child and not just reading and math. Absolutely. Well, that wraps up the conversation. So thank you, Preston, for joining us on today's podcast to discuss the challenges that teachers face in today's educational landscape and just how we can foster and nurture all of that creativity in our classroom. So thank you, Preston. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Of course. And as always, if you'd like to learn more, please visit boxlight.com and look for this podcast wherever it is you get your podcasts at. I've been your host, Gabrielle. Thanks for tuning in. 